Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 251. What child is this? I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became a stronger. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket officer. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello there, and welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, I mean, it seems like a natural question for me to ask, given the title of this episode, but what child is this? Well, it's that one over there. It's the one. <laughs> oh, we're audio only. I forgot. you, So you can't see me holding this one up. It's the one spinning the top and looking at the sandbox critically. <laughs> yes, well, uh, we have a gem of an episode for you here today, speaking with Bonnie McBird about her latest book, What Child Is This? Um, seems like an apt opportunity, too, for us to uh, recall our last episode, our 250th. Um, what a barn burner that was. Uh, we had a great time. And um, we actually uh, had a couple of outtakes episodes that we produced. Not just one, but two. Two mm. outtakes episodes. Because that's, that's how we think of our listeners here. You deserve so much more than we typically give. Um, so you can check those out on Patreon or Substack if you're a PayPal supporter. Uh, but if you're a Patreon supporter, you can get it right there in the Patreon interface. Um, we're also running, uh, I think we're running a poll. Uh, we have, uh, oh, we have some additional information to ask you about. In another bonus episode, we actually have uh, a collection of books. We have six books that are here in the IHOS vaults that, uh, well, are, are just taking up too much space. And we thought, what a great opportunity to thank our <laughs> Patreon supporters. Um, we are going to ask you to identify some voices, and uh, we'll have that in the uh, in an extra post over on Patreon. We'll also post it on our 
Substack for our PayPal supporters as well. If you can uh, answer the questions that we have in that bonus post, then we have six books that will be made available to you. They are, uh, let's see, the, the Sherlock Holmes Little Book of Wisdom, uh, Maria Konnikova's Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. We've got the Basil Rathbone autobiography, In and Out of Character. Uh, a copy of William Baring Gould's Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street. Uh, Hesketh Pearson's biography, Conan Doyle. And finally, this is this should really uh, pique your interest, listeners. Uh, we have a battered old copy of Winwood Reed's *The Martyrdom of Man*. Mm. So, if you uh, if you know that one, that is from the canon itself. Sherlock Holmes, I believe, mentioned the martyrdom of man in. Gosh, was it the very first story? Is in. Uh, a study in Scarlet. I'm I'm fuzzy on my Winwood Reed. Oh, me too. I don't remember. Could be. I thought it was in Sign of Four, but it could be. In, it, that in could be right. Study. That could be right. Look it up, Watson. You really should. Um, but anyway, that collection of books will be yours if uh, you come out on top from this challenge that we are issuing to all of our supporters. So, uh, either join us at Patreon.com/slash I Hear of Sherlock or uh, via PayPal, and we will make that bonus material available to you. Bonnie McBird is a writer and artist who had a Hollywood career that included four years as a feature film development executive at Universal. She wrote the original screenplay for the movie Tron. She's won three Emmy Awards for documentary writing and producing and 11 Senegal Eagles for scripted and documentary work. Art in the Blood was her first Sherlock Holmes novel, published in 2015 by HarperCollins. The series continued with Unquiet Spirits in 2017, The Devil's Due in 2019, and The Three Locks in 2020. And now we have her fifth Sherlock Holmes adventure, a Christmas novella called What Child Is This? In addition to her writing, Bonnie has worked in theater extensively as a playwright, actor, and director. She studied Shakespeare in the United States and the United Kingdom and is also an accomplished watercolorist. Bonnie teaches a popular screenwriting class at UCLA's Extension School. She's a regular speaker internationally on writing, creativity, and Sherlock Holmes. She received her investiture, Art in the Blood, from the Baker Street Irregulars in 2017 and is married to computer scientist Alan Kay splitting her time between her homes in Los Angeles and London. Bonnie McBird, welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, we are pleased to have you back, uh, as I uh, inferred there. You were with us on episode 83, talking about your first novel, Art in the Blood, and back on episode 132 for Unquiet Spirits. So uh, we are uh, pleased to have you back here for novel number five. This is amazing. So uh, talk to us a little bit about what motivates you to keep writing these Sherlock Holmes books. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, what? I don't know. I just love doing it, uh, Scott. I mean, I, um, 
you know, I did it kind of as a recovery activity after an illness, the first, the first book. And uh, <laughs> I guess I just got, I don't know, in the habit. Um, and HarperCollins asked for another one and then another one. And so the series has just progressed. And I have to say that, uh, especially in these troubled times, I love spending time on, on Baker Street <laughs> uh, with, with, uh, with these two uh, brilliant guys. That's that's really lovely, you know, because we talk to so many writers, and sometimes we'll talk to a writer who will say, you know, I hate writing. I mean, this is really, I, I hate it. You know, what I like is the editing. It just takes me forever to sit down. But boy, that's wonderful, because it really is. I mean, it can be, can't it? Uh, a lovely escape to the, to the cozy Victorian era, and this surround, and this characters, and, and it's restorative to you as a writer, isn't it? So that's, that's I think, more like it. It, it is. Uh, you know, I actually love writing, and I'm, that's not to say it isn't hard work. It is, but, uh, you know, I don't just dash off, you know. <laughs> Somebody once told me that they thought of me as a writer sitting in, a, in an outdoor cafe with a glass of white wine, you know, casually penning things. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's actually hours and hours of work, but it, but it is pleasurable. It is what I love to do. And um, so my one of the things I do is the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I make coffee, I sit down, and I start work on the book. Oh, that's wonderful. See, we, we talked about that in one of our conversations with you. I remember we talked about the experience of flow, and you know, which you had dug into um, with the books from Csikszentmihalyi, I remember. So you have this flow experience of writing. Time passes for you, and suddenly you realize you've been doing it for two hours, and you look up. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's, it's a habit now to write. So it's, um, it's, I do automatically click into kind of just full, full on concentration. Um, flow, yeah, flow doesn't happen reliably every single day. Uh, but I, but happens often enough. And it, it is really pleasurable because, um, you really don't know what time it is. I, um, I write to word count. So, um, uh, one of the things that I do is instead of really angsting about figuring out whether I hit my mark or I like I'm really working or <laughs> or some other kind of judgment about what I'm doing, um, I just go like I'm going to do X number of words a day and I just hit that mark and I, you know if I if I'm in on a roll I just keep going but if I'm uh, you know if I'm not I just stop and I've mm -hmm. I've hit my mark I've done it so it's a uh, kind of a um, you know, it takes it takes the onus away of like constantly judging. You know, did I get enough done? Was it good enough? And all this stuff. What What's your minimum count? What, are you a thousand word a day uh, writer? No, currently I'm five hundred words a day. That's very slow. Um, I often will do more than that, so, uh, up to two thousand, three thousand. But I I don't. Um, I don't feel the need to do that. Um, I'm working kind of more of a, as a tortoise than a hare, but I get there. And I've been reliably, um, I wrote two books during lockdown. So I feel like my system's working. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, so. <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and partly it's, it's, I've dialed back the, the word count because, um, you know, there's a lot of research involved. It isn't just generating the story and just generating 
pages. It's, um, you know, because I, I, I weave back and forth between actually drafting and then going back to finding the research of the stuff that I need and then being inspired by that and going back. And so, um, so you know, it, it just is a process that really, really works for me. And um, when I describe it to people, they go, oh, that's hardly any words at all. You know, I, I can do that. But, <laughs> but um, I, I teach writing and one of the things that is so helpful is, um, is to set a goal for yourself that's attainable. And then when you attain it reliably every single day, boom, 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 you get, you set up this pattern, this winning pattern, and you just stay with it. Whereas if you set the goal too high and you start missing, you think, oh, I'll make up tomorrow. And then you don't, and then you fall further behind. And then you, you know, and you set up a different kind of mindset to yourself that I can't, I, I'm not done. I didn't do enough. And blah, 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 blah. So this is kind of a weird uh, psychology, but it really works. Yeah. It's it wonderful. sounds like I don't it does. Think it's, I don't think it's weird. The, one of the things I noticed in your book, in your, in your introduction and in the, in the people that you thanked for this, there was a writing group mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was really curious about that. Yeah, I, th I think anybody who's serious about writing and you know is writing professionally should uh, have or form a crit group. Um, I'm a member of a crit group in Los Angeles. Of course, we meet on Zoom now, uh, and uh, we just meet every every Friday evening in London, morning in in, in, in L.A. And we basically bring in our pages, we read them aloud, and uh, people, you know, give you very, very good counsel on these on these pages. They're tough. They're all professionals. They're all pro published people, um, and they're tough, but they're they're fair because um, you know they're all writers themselves. <laughs> so, and then I formed a second group that meets actually on Monday nights because I really find these useful. The second group was uh, originally comprised of. Um, uh, a bunch of writers who used to be my students and who are now writing professionally. And um, so that second group meets on Mondays and, and we just, it's the same kind of thing really. And I think it's just so invaluable because you have to kind of have some pages ready to show. So, you know, it's like homework is due, you know, uh, and it has to be good enough because you're going to read it aloud. You don't embarrass yourself, right? So it's got to be above a certain threshold. You can bring things in in a in a draft form though and that you could so sometimes people will bring in pages and go like okay this is early days this is like my first second draft here or other times they're going like i think i'm done here uh, tell me if this is working so you know you can solicit comments at various levels of your of your work and um it's just a it's a fabulous process really there's nothing like peer pressure to keep you accountable is there <laughs> no, no, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bonnie, I'm, I'm curious, uh, lots of things I want to ask you, but um, in terms of the 500-word minimum that you put in per day, do you find that that uh, is more helpful with your editing process when you go back and you need to, to rework uh, your words, or... Uh, it, do, do you kind of stay on the same kind of level in terms of uh, writing and editing? No, the editing is a, an entirely different process for me, and um, I will do big swaths of work at a time. Sometimes I'll skip through it, going like I've got to, I've got to follow this thread throughout the entire book and make sure that the timing of this works out. And when I say two days ago this happened, it wasn't three days ago, and you know, so I'm tracking some 
something, you know, all the way through the, the book, for example. So I'll be skipping through chapters. Other times I'll, I'll just be going, this chapter just feels loose and sloppy and I just, it's not right yet. So I'll just, you know, kind of take this strafing run on a whole chapter and, or, or, or a whole section. And um, so, so the editing is a very, very different feel uh, and different process entirely. So th this is, the 500 is just for first drafting I'm talking about, just to get, um, the, first, the first book I did, um, I did it in a different way. Uh, Art in the Blood I did as a NaNoWriMo. So, um, and I think it's, is it 1960 words a day or something like that? Yeah, I forget exactly the right amount the mat that you have to do to, uh, in 30 days to get a 50,000 word first draft done. So I drafted at that speed for the first one. But um, I'm finding that uh, this is this is now five books in. So my, my process has kind of evolved over time. And for me, um, the tortoise and the hare, the hare works, uh, the tortoise works really well for the drafting yeah. as opposed to trying to... Um, vomited out like at full speed uh, and, and then you know then you know because um I, but I often will start really enjoying myself and do way more than 500 words but yeah. it's just that I can stop at 500 and know that I've done a, a, a good day's work yeah well and you know Bonnie I think you do yourself a little bit of a disservice when you go back and edit for dates uh accuracy because uh, clearly Conan Doyle wasn't doing that when he was drafting his, his works. Well, he was apparently a very fast writer. Um, and yeah, he, he obviously had a million discrepancies. But I tell you, even when you go into them, like I just described, and even when I have editors look at it, and even when I've pay, I pay editors before I send it to my publisher even, um, the, even when I do all that, there's still, there's still mistakes in there. And ah, oh, it's just, oh man, I can't, I cannot get rid of all of them and um but you know there's a certain point at which you, you, there's a point at which the perfectionism is, is a detriment to the process so you have yeah. to drop that especially in the early drafts you have to just go with spontaneity and does the dialogue work and you know is, is the story moving along and do i need some action now because it's starting to sag and you do these kind of big shape uh shape work in a way and then um you know, I, there's these promises, you know, once you're writing Holmes, there's a certain set of promises you have to deliver on. So you have to deliver deductions. You have to give them that. You have to deliver the friendship. You have to deliver, I believe, you have to, I like to deliver some jeopardy, some danger, some kind of, uh, some kind of physical action. That's not an every Conan Doyle story, but it's in a lot of them. And, but I feel like with a longer form, the novella and the no novel, you really need some action. So I have all these kind of um, uh, benchmark things that I have to hit. And I just kind of make really, really sure that I do. Um, and I think St Steve, no, it was, uh, Mark Gatiss said that um, the hardest thing was the deductions. Yeah. No question. That's, that is quite a list of elements to have to weave together a challenge for uh, any writer. Uh, so uh, gratified to hear that uh, you're able to pull it off. Um, so uh, talk to us a little bit about the research that uh, went in specifically to, uh, to this book and, and your research process. Is, 
Is your style one where you prefer to do all of the research up front, or do you continue the research as you go through? And, and, and what did you put in as far as research work for what child is this? Ah, well, that's um, several questions in one. <laughs> uh, the, the research usually starts up at the top. The first thing that happens when I start a new project is I think of the title. And, um, and then I get uh, a title and a theme, uh, something I want to say with this book. And that is something that you don't typically lead with when you're writing genre fiction. You don't lead with theme. Um, you lead with plot, typically. Um, but I like to have, because I think once I've pulled a Holmes, I've stretched a Sherlock Holmes-type story into a novel length. I feel like I need it needs a little more meat. It needs a little something underneath it. Uh, that delivers some ideas without being, you know, a polemic, without being, you know, making that a big issue because it's, it's an adventure fiction. It's fun. But so I start with a, a thing, which is a theme. So What Child Is This was the first thing I came up with was the title because I love the Christmas tune to Greensleeves, What Child Is This? And um, so then I thought, okay, that title seems to think, okay, is there a child that's missing? Is there a child whose identity is in question? You know, so I started to think plot ideas like this. And then I started doing research. Uh, you know, of course, uh, the plight of children in, in the late Victorian age was, well, it's fine if you're wealthy, <laughs> but if you were anything short of that, it was dangerous to be a child, frankly. Um, and uh, there was a the whole story of the workhouses and what happened to children who were orphaned. Um, and there was actually quite a bit of trade in child labor because children were conscripted into factories. They were used as uh, almost like slave labor in, you know, large houses at the, in the most menial tasks as servants. Um, and they had very few protect, protective laws at the time. There were just, you know, not a lot of... Um, organizations looking after them. Now, there were orphanages, and there were uh, people who were trying to help children and so forth, but it was it was quite a dangerous uh, state to be in as, a, as an orphaned child. So, uh, and also this huge, vast disparity between the classes. I mean, we have, have it now still, but, but, even, but it was far more so then. So, for example, our whole notion of Victorian Christmas, or our whole notion really of Christmas is based on the late Victorian English celebrations, which were inspired by Germany, which uh, this part of my early research was understanding that Prince Albert brought in the tree and the presents and the caroling and all the stuff. He brought that from Germany and that became popular in the royal family. And so it seeped out to the rest of the country. And um, so so our whole romantic notion of Christmas and children singing and you know the carols and all this stuff uh, is one thing, but the flip side of that is, and you know, people were it was the coldest time of the year and uh, much colder at that time than it is now, and kids were dying in the streets. They had no shoes, you know, no food and stuff. So, but this isn't a Dickensian tale. But Holmes was living in that in that dual world and. Um, so I think, you know, that sort of became a background as I researched that. Also, um, kind of funny thing is that I live in a, a Victorian building. It was built in 1890. And at the time it was built, right out my back window was the Marlebone Workhouse, and uh, which is mere blocks from where 221B would have been. So, so the Marlebone Workhouse was the biggest workhouse in London. 
and uh, huge. And so, you know, I kind of looked into what, what it would be like to, you know, have a child while you're in the workhouse and what, what that would mean and so forth. So that, so some of that research just started inspiring this character and the situation. Um, and I, that's, I guess basically that's how I started it with that kind of research. Um, and then you asked, do I return to research while working? And I, definitely, definitely. I'll be writing along and I'll go, oh, wait a minute. Uh, you know, what kind of jewelry would she have been wearing? Or what, you know, how likely would she have been to take her child out to the street Christmas shopping? In other words, I would just start to look at social uh, constraints and things of the time. If, you know, we have to look up everything because it's, uh, you know, <laughs> Conan Doyle was writing contemporary fiction. And, uh, you know, so he didn't have to look up what people were wearing. <laughs> he just looked out the window. Um, so there's, it, it, it's an ongoing process during the writing. We're going to pause here a moment for a quick word from our sponsor. We're moving into the holiday season. And what better time to plan for the gifts that you wish to give or the gifts you wish to put on your wish list? There's plenty to choose from at MX Publishing. Since we talked to you last, there are scores of new books available on the site. Things like The Valley of Fear, Black-Eyed Theater Script by Nick Lane. The Rediscovered Annals of Sherlock Holmes by Terry Gollidge. The English Garden Mystery. That's volume 11 of the McCabe and Cody series by our friend Dan Andreaco. And coming up in the weeks ahead, things like Sherlock Holmes and the Case of the Fateful Arrow by Daniel Victor, The Baker Street Archive by Mark Mower, The Hound of the Baskervilles, a Sherlock Holmes reader by Nick Rieke, and dozens and dozens more. Get on over to mxpublishing.com to check out what books you can put on your holiday shopping list today. So what we should tell our listeners, too, that, you know, what child is this? We're talking about so much here. We're talking about workhouses and so on. But it's, you know, it's a charming, comfortable, uh, comforting, terrific story, well-paced. And it's just obviously a great Christmas present. But that gets me to Sherlock Holmes and Christmas. You know, one of the things we find when you present Holmes here um, is that he's not really... Um, uh, a tinsel—he's uh, <laughs> not a fezziwig sort of a fellow at Christmas time. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your your thinking about Holmes and his reactions to Christmas? Well, my reading was that he would have sort of uh, chafed at the kind of enforced jollity of the season, you know, and and all uh, you know all the you know crazed family family stuff. That's just not who he was, and he he. He seemed like he wouldn't wouldn't really have enjoyed that, um, and it kind of hibernated. At least that, that's also the impression I got, of course, from the blue carbuncle. Um, you know, uh, in the original one, of course, uh, when Watson comes, was it the day after Christmas or two days after Christmas? He comes by, uh, so they they obviously has haven't celebrated together because um, he's living with Mary at the time. So so I think I feel like Holmes wouldn't be. Um, you wouldn't have a tree and all this stuff. Uh, although uh, I could also imagine that Mrs. Hudson would want to, you know, bring in a little, 
<laughs> a little warmth and a little spirit into the place. Um, this just seems logical to me that he, he would not be a big celebrator <laughs> of all this stuff. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, but it's and he is he is cantankerous at times in the in the canon, so he's cantankerous here. But yes, you know, thank you for for actually pointing out that you know I'm talking about all this awful Dickensian stuff a, a minute ago. But <laughs> in fact, I wanted to create kind of a Christmas bonbon where it's a feel good book. It really is. Um, that's what we want at Christmas, and boy, that's what we need right now. <laughs> Frankly, we all need that. And so, so I wanted it to be a feel good book, but you know, with some meat behind it, with some you know, um, some challenges to Holmes in this in this area. So one of the things he has to do to solve the two cases in the, these this book, in what child is this, is he has to figure out some social things, which is not his area of strength. <laughs> and so he has to kind of reach a little deeper than uh, and do some do some thinking, some problem solving that is not his normal kind, and yet it fits into his his uh, his deductive thinking and his his observations of people but he has to reach a little deeper in this one and i think watson and we are pleasantly surprised by by the solution he comes to yeah very much and also you know to your point about um warmth and so on and the christmas time in in the victorian era and what christmas in baker street might be like you've got some lovely little touches here you know that show the concern that mrs hudson has for her lodger and you know the smells and the sounds of what christmas would be like in baker street i you know i just thought those were wonderful additions to you know this fast-paced tale thank you thank you i appreciate that <laughs> Bert. you know it's interesting because i i think um you know conan doyle uh, immerses you in in the world and that's one of the reasons we love to read him um so you know it's another another thing to emulate i you know it's hubris to emulate this man who's such a great writer and but but the way i look at it is each time i'm working on these holmesian stories i mean i feel like i'm learning as a writer so to add to be able to evoke uh, an ambience like that, to, to put you, to actually transport you to that place with the sounds and the smells and so forth. I mean, he does that. And so it's kind of inspired by his, um, his way of doing that, 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 um, that you get that here. Uh, and and I, I do love it. I mean, we all kind of romanticize the Victorian Christmas, I think, <laughs> you know, uh, but that's, uh, that's when it became popularized and it became a, a part of the popular culture right at that time. Hmm. Now you spoke, you spoke a moment ago about uh, learning as a writer and one of the things that I thought was a, another fa fabulous touch in this book, and I, it's certainly not a spoiler, I mean we're not talking about plot spoilers here folks, so you're still, still going to enjoy the book, but one of the things that, that you have here is Watson, who is reading Pliny the Elder. <laughs> and that's because somewhere along the line, he's sort of made the decision to widen his scope of understanding of the world. And he's been given, you know, this book. And indeed, Pliny is sort of a, a frame for, um, you know, the sections of the book. Um, you know, you've got quotations here. So t tell us a little bit about your thinking about Pliny and about how that features here. 
Well, that was a <laughs> that started as a random choice, and then it turned into something really good, which is the way a lot of research works for me. I like I'll find something that looks like it might work, and then I'll plug it in, and then all of a sudden it'll have extended arms add into the rest of the plot, and it's plenty sort of happened that way. We know that um, Holmes says of Goethe, you know, he's uh, so that he has the pithy quotes. He has pithy quotes. He's, he's often pithy or whatever the term is. So I think, and Pliny is super pithy. <laughs> so so Holmes likes these, you know, aphorisms. And and, uh, and also he's kind of poking fun a little bit at Watson. Um, and you, you probably know this yourselves. You know, they're, they're always relatives who for, you know, the holidays want to give you an improving gift. <laughs> <laughs> something that will help you, <laughs> you know. And so I think that the notion of, of uh, Holmes wanting to, you know, improve Watson is, is a funny one. But also, I mean, these, it also shows the sort of, it points up a couple things about the two of them because Pliny uh, the Elder was, was a scientist but also a philosopher. And, you know, it's the reason he went to... Um, to Pompeii was you know, it was arguable. Like, what, did he go to rescue people? Was he an adventurer? Was he a Watson type? Or did he go to study what happened at Mount Vesuvius? Was he the science type? Was he a Holmes type? So there's just some lot of little fun things about that that just that were not intended when I originally picked it out, but that kind of spun out as as the writing went on. And um, so I, it was just fun. And also, I just love that that Holmes wants to improve Watson. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Um, one of the things, Bonnie, that uh, I think has always been important to you uh, as, as part of your presentation to your readership has been the artwork. I mean, certainly the title of your very first book, Art in the Blood, and your investiture in the Baker Street Irregular uh, kind of uh, belays that. And in this novel and your fifth novel now you have a new illustrator a fellow irregular by the name of frank cho and many of our listeners may know frank from his work from uh, the marvel and dc uh, universes uh, i'm curious about how this collaboration with frank uh, came to be Ah, that's a fun story. Well, I met Frank at the BSI, and I so loved his uh, his beautiful line drawings that he's done for some of the programs and so forth. And you know, that was my actually that was my introduction to Frank was his BSI artwork. And you know, I met him and I I sought him out, and I think uh, I think we got we sat together at one of the oyster <laughs> oyster feasts. <laughs> and um, anyway, I just events. really liked him. Yes, yes, one of those. And um, so we laughed and had had a good time. And then he came to London uh, and was doing a signing at Forbidden Planet for some uh, some a release of a, some of a, a collection of his art. And I went. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll see Frank, and we'll you know we we went out to um, Sherlock Holmes Pub for dinner after. So I I got in line with a with a purchase at, to get his autograph, and it was all men in this line. <laughs> It was like, there's got to be like 40, 40 people in the line. And I think I'm the only female. And uh, the reason is, of course, because Frank Frank is known as a Mar Marvel comic artist. He, he specializes in kind of two major, well, action figures, but mainly big monsters and really zoftig women. <laughs> 
So you don't associate that with Sherlock Holmes. And yet his drawings for the BSI and the Sherlockian stuff he did was so fine. So we got to talking and he ha he was inspired by um, Franklin Booth, an illustrator of the late 19th, early 20th century, who did this beautiful line work that inspires Frank's style of this, this kind of line work. And uh, so yeah, we got to talking about that. And so then um, when I came up with the notion and pitched the uh, Christmas novella idea to HarperCollins, I said, what if we, you know, got Frank Cho to illustrate that? And they were like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds fabulous. <laughs> they were, they were all, all for that. So I got to bring him in basically. And then they, they made their deal with him. And um, then uh, it waited until I was done with the draft. And then I, <clears throat> he said, well, what scenes do you want illustrated? And I said, well, you know, you should choose, but I'm going to, I'm going to give you my top selections, what I, ones I think would be most conducive to, you know, an action scene or whatever. And I used to be a screenwriter, excuse me, I used to be a screenwriter. And so, um, you know, I, I think visually, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, and I draw also. So I, I, I see the scenes in my head. I mean, the movie is playing in front of my eyes as I'm writing very, very clearly, like I can see every spot of it. And um, so I said, so I picked out several and he goes, okay, give me some more. <laughs> so, so then I picked out several more and I really didn't know which ones he was going to choose. And we went back and forth for a while. And then uh, I wanted him to make the choice though. Um, but then of course we were also trying to sprinkle them through the book so they're not all like lumped at the beginning or the end. Anyway, so he made the choice. Uh, and then um, we also corresponded a bit about, uh, he wanted some suggestions for uh, certain things like, um, Oops. Uh, like, like, so he said, how would Heffy be dressed? Heffy is, a, she's a recurring character in my, uh, my books. She's a 16 year old orphan from, um, whose, uh, father was an Irish prize fighter and his mother was a, uh, Jewish school teacher. Anyway, she's a very colorful, uh, young woman and, uh, she's got now got a job with the police. And so she's, she's described as wearing something kind of conservative and attractive, but not very expensive. And he said, so what would that look like? So I made a Pinterest file for him, uh, so we went back and forth with a bunch of examples of hairstyles and, you know, clothing and certain props and so forth. Uh, and so, you know, we talked that way as well. So that's how we worked together. And I was so, so thrilled with his work. Um, I ended up buying the originals from him, which I have, and I'm getting framed. Um, and I'm, I'm just thrilled that, that Frank wanted to do this and, and had a good time. Well, that's just marvelous. And I'm so pleased to know that uh, the artwork has a good home. Um, you know, otherwise Jerry Margolin would be likely to take it from you. <laughs> um, and I should note for our listeners, we did speak with Frank Cho previously on episode 188. So uh, we'll have a link to that as well as to Bonnie's other episodes in the show notes there. So, uh, Bonnie, as you, as you marveled, pun intended, at Frank's work in your book, uh, were there any surprises to you? Any uh, characterizations or uh, expressions, mannerisms, scenes that uh, stood out to you or that made you um, surprised in any way? You mean by Frank's work? Yes. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, 
okay, so he doesn't obviously see them exactly as, as I do in my head because I said that I'm a highly visual uh, thinker and as I'm writing, they are in my head. Uh, you know, I can see them. Um, so my homes in my head is maybe a little more tousled looking, a little less superhero looking and a little more uh, sort of thinner and more, uh, uh, I don't know, not, not quite as macho looking, I guess. But so, so did they come out different than they were in my head? Absolutely. But do I love them? Oh, totally, totally love them. So this, uh, his Holmes is a is almost a Superman character. Um, very, very handsome, obviously. And and uh, and his style is inspired by the you know the forties and fifties uh, comic comic uh, illustrations, as well as the. Uh, the Franklin Booth stuff of, of an earlier era. So uh, yeah, and what I love about his and what constantly surprised me was how he set these things, especially on the, the full page illustrations, how he set them uh, in a frame. You know, the particular, my favorite one is uh, of course the uh, the attempted abduction of the little boy on, on um, Oxford Street. Uh, it's just a remarkable, it's a, a very cinematic, beautiful uh, staging of this. So yeah, he did surprise me. And uh, we talked a lot about Heffy because um, she's very clear in my head. And actually he, his drawing of Heffy is almost exactly how she is in my head, <laughs> which, you know, is just kind of magic. But um, I really loved his, his characterization of this, uh, this very fun girl. <laughs> and uh she she's been well liked by the readers, um, and so I brought her back. But uh, yeah, so he and I think the other there's a kind of an important I can't this is a spoiler to talk about it too much in detail. But there's a there's a wonderful uh, kind of subtle reveal moment in which one of the mysteries is solved by Holmes, um, and he just handled that in the most elegant way. I thought. Um, so I, I just was I was just thrilled with Frank's work, <laughs> just every part of it. One of the, one of the things that really distinguishes your work over over this series is that you've gone to great lengths to almost make them a multimedia experience because you have a link to things on the website macbird.com where people can go and look essentially at your annotations and I think they're looking at you know some of the fruits of your research so if they want to see what the Marleybone workhouse looked like back in the 19th century you know you have a photograph there do you, do you want to talk a little bit about your thinking about all that and, and how you can extend the experience of the novel to people by giving them these kinds of annotations online Sure. Well, thank you for bringing that up, Bert. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I'm not sure how many people actually go there and look at those, but um, I, I've always loved, uh, you know, Les Klinger's, uh, you know, giant three-volume uh, annotated edition of, of the canon. That's just, you know, it's got pride of place on and my bookshelf, both here and in LA, and every every Sherlockian I know has it, <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's such a delight to be able to pop out and learn a little something about what they're talking about what was that what then was you know Conan Doyle as I said was writing contemporary fiction so he didn't have to explain these things but we often don't have the context so so it's just so fun and when there are pictures and and Les was so wonderful about curating these gorgeous illustrations and so forth uh, I I was inspired by Les and now I you know I'm this is a pale imitation because mine are just kind of uh, much shorter uh, 
shorter things, but but I think they can increase the uh, enjoyment. Um, there was some talk of including them in the book, but I did. I felt like that would distract from the from the sense of just you're reading a fun novel. You know, you're just reading your. Um, it, it would pull you out of the immersive quality of the storytelling. I, I, and storytelling is, is, is the leading uh, effect here. It's, it's over, over character, over plot, over everything. It's just the sense of being pulled by a story. Is, that's what gives you the, um, the transporting experience. And I felt like putting those annotations in the book would disturb that but I want I want them available <laughs> so there they are anyway um, I'm still actually putting the ones up for what child is this right now well it's fabulous you know it really it really does add a lot and I think it was a very wise move not to not to include that in the book so uh, Bonnie I have to imagine based on your previous output um, you've got you've got some other Sherlock Holmes books in you what's what's next up on your writing table? Uh, well, I'm working, uh, I'm well into book uh, six now. I'm about uh, a fourth of the way into drafting it. And um, yeah, it's another, it's a, another full length novel. And uh, <clears throat> this one is um, mostly going to take place in London. Um, I ha have some other locations I want to explore, but since I can't travel right now, uh, I'm I'm holding off on those because I'd like to <laughs> I'd like to go to the places I usually usually do that when there's no pandemic happening. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so so it's mostly London, and it's uh, oh, it, it involves you know I've got the the several worlds uh, involved in it. Um, it's, it has to do with, I don't want to tell about it too much, but uh, it's called A Serpent Under. It's about treachery and uh, deceit and various things to do with that. So it's, uh, I'm having a lot of fun with it. <laughs> that's great. And so you know, that, that's the one thing I, I wanted to remark on. Um, I think it's clear from your books that you have a lot of fun in the writing process and in, in creating worlds around these characters because it shows in the work. I know you, you've talked about how you enjoy it, but it actually shows up in uh, how you write about it and, and the finished product. And I think we all are the beneficiaries of you having a good time at what you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Scott. I, I um, yeah, I, I think that's what they're, they're for. They're for fun, really. You know, they are entertainment. And the other thing is that uh, one of the things I love about Conan Doyle so much and these characters is they're, they're quite funny to me. I mean, it's not, it's not blatant comedy, but there is a lot of wit in Conan Doyle's writing. And I just enjoy these characters as they poke at each other a bit and as they remark on the <laughs> the various people they encounter it, it's just a I, I have fun kind of entering into that mindset and I and I hope to you know uh, I hope to bring that to the readers as well because it's just fun yeah that and that's a really interesting point I mean we talk a lot in the Sherlockian world about this incredible friendship between these two men and I think the point you just raised there is a subtle yet important one. With our closest friends in our lives, we're able to be vulnerable. We're able to poke fun at each other. We're able to uh, kind of nitpick and nag as well as uh, champion and support each other. It's, it's really about the, the 360 degrees of what a friendship really is. And I think it's 
it's really interesting that you would call that out and uh, and note that because Conan Doyle did it well, and I think uh, you know you continue in that tradition in your books. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> I yeah, I try I try to uh, try to show the reader a good time, basically. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean that's that's what the books are for me. I mean there's so much for me really. There's more, obviously, much more than that. And uh, you know, and we in our Sherlockian world of of all our friends who love this so much, um, you know, there's you know there's these deep resonances with you know various things we, you know, the respect for the scientific process, the respect for you know the friendship, the um, the sense of you know being a champion of justice and of clearly seeing right from wrong, which is so difficult in modern times. I mean, there's so many refreshing aspects to this, uh, to these works. And then the, and then the uh, cozy quality of the writing, where you start and end in 221B, there's something that it just so envelops us with uh, a sense of, you know, fun, but also adventure, but friendship, kindness, uh, justice, and just, uh, you know, it's like the world is right in this little world. And you, you can guarantee that when you read a Sherlock Holmes book or a Sherlock Holmes story, that you will get a good resolution, that he will solve the problem and things will be set right. Very true, very true, versus uh, the real world where things just keep going on and on and on. <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful escape. Um, and I should note to our listeners here that we do have a copy of uh, Bonnie McBird's What Child Is This? as a prize for the canonical couplet, which will be coming up in a few minutes after the interview. So you'll want to keep listening and make sure you uh, listen for our clue. And if you solve it and you are selected from all of the uh, correct answers, you'll win a copy of Bonnie McBird's book. So, uh, Bonnie, where can people find your book and more information about it? They can find information about it on my website, which is www.macbird.com. But uh, they can get some uh, autographed copies of various places. Uh, the Mysterious Bookshop in uh, New York, of course, Otto will be carrying um, uh, book plates signed uh, copies. Um, Poison Pen in Scottsdale and Murder by the Book in Houston will also have um, uh some autographed or book plated copies and they can get direct uh direct autographs from goldsboro books in london and then of course you can get them on amazon or we could just come see you in london that's all (laughs) that would be great i would love it i would love it please do come visit yeah yeah I'd love to. Well, Bonnie McBird, thank you so much for being our guest and having this wonderful conversation with us here on i hear of sherlock everywhere Well, it's been a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk to Bonnie, and this is such a great conversation. You know, when we talk about her, we talk talk with her, we talk about everything, including the writing process and the fun of writing and the world of Holmes and Watson. You know, she's so professional, so process-oriented. And I loved her conversation about, uh, her comments about promises in her books, you know, that they will deliver friendship and deductions and the added frisson of jeopardy. 
it's, it's always great to talk to her. It really was. And, uh, you know, it helps me, at least, it helped me understand uh, exactly the challenges that Bonnie faces as a writer. I mean, she's clearly having a great time doing what she's doing, so it's not that it's such a labor, but the way she has to coordinate all of those elements and develop uh, a feasible plot and do the research, I mean, it really is uh, a kind of a master class in uh, how to approach creative writing. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote 22 novels. The one he thought his best is an adventure story of knights and chivalry. 20-year-old Alan Edrickson travels the world encountering bullies, con artists, thieves, a damsel in distress, and two men who become his closest friends. Together they join the White Company, archers and fighters led by the gallant Sir Nigel Loring. Will our hero win the hand of Loring's romantic daughter Maud? Will the chivalrous Prince Edward restore Peter of Castile to his Spanish throne? Published in 1891 and never out of print, The White Company is a tale of pageantry and piracy, heraldry and hope, published now in an exclusive, annotated edition with the original N.C. Wyeth illustrations in blazing color. Don't you owe it to yourself to read Conan Doyle's favorite book? Get The Annotated White Company at wessexpress.com. Oh, you know what that means. Yes, it's everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. That's right, it's Canonical Couplet, where we give you two lines of poetry, and we ask to, well, get you to... Use your brain cells, those little gray cells, and uh, put them to work to figure out exactly what it is that we're talking about here. <laughs> because Lord knows, <laughs> we don't always know what uh, we're talking about ourselves. But the last time we were here for our 250th episode, we gave you this clue. Something killed and something burned. A seal with purple wax. We stagnate in the provinces, but still squeeze out the facts. Bert, <laughs> do you know what you wrote here? <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's, that is a famous case. That's the case where Violet Hunter, all alone in the world, comes to Sherlock Holmes and winds up doing laundry for a policeman. Hmm. That's the case Watson called... The Copper's Bleaches. Yeah, that, that earned you the sad trombone this time around, Bert. <laughs> you know, I need to come up with some kind of variance in our, in our sad uh, sound effects here after you make your guess, because just the rim shot and the sad trombone I don't think are cutting it. Uh, no, no, that was not it uh, unfortunately uh, the answer we were looking for was uh, wisteria lodge and our good friend eric deckers continues to add to the hilarity here he says aha i've solved it it's the story of the school lunch lady 
was found face down on a large platter of roast beef and mashed potatoes with a side of gravy. It's the adventure of the cafeteria stodge. Hold on, that can't possibly be right. It's more likely the adventure of Wisteria Lodge. But the good news is we do have a number of people who uh, put in a decent guess, and uh, we will turn to everyone's favorite prop right here. It's the big prize wheel, and we'll give it a spin. Watching it come around, landing on number... 67. Number 67. That's a great number. And it sounds like the winner is Rich Criskyunis. Congratulations. Wow. You are the lucky recipient of a copy of the EBSJ. That's right. You will be able to research and read the Baker Street Journal every single issue from 1946 to 2011. All kinds of material at your fingertips there to uh, be shared on the screen. So that is great news. Well, uh, this time around, as I mentioned in our interview with Bonnie, we have uh, a copy of her book, what, uh, Whose Child Is No, What Child Is This? Not Whose Child Is This? What Child Is This? Uh, from HarperCollins, illustrations by Frank Cho. So if you can answer this canonical couplet correctly, that could be your prize. Another case where someone wants to pay more than it's worth. 5,000 pounds may be enough to travel round the earth. If you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment that I hear of Sherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win. Good luck. All right. That should be enough to uh, give people something to chew on. And don't forget that uh, bonus contest that we have for our supporters. Just go to patreon.com slash I hear of Sherlock to become a Patreon supporter and to unlock that bonus content that only our patrons can hear and read. Yeah. Well, Bert, I guess we've we've done it for uh, the month of October. Uh, we have uh, what four episodes left in this season. The uh, anticipation's mounting. Well, you know that calls to mind one of the extracts from Pliny the Elder that Bonnie uses to uh, introduce the various parts of her novel. And in part one, she quotes Pliny the Elder. Hope is the pillar that holds up the world. Hope is the dream of the waking man. I like that. Yeah. There is much to hope for. Yeah, from my hair of Sherlock everywhere. Yeah. And from the flowers. <laughs> and from the flowers, yes. <laughs> That's the only assurance we have of the goodness of Providence and the adequacy of Pawtucket. <laughs> And for you Rhode Islanders, <laughs> you'll understand that. Well, in the meantime, I remain the very ex-New Englander, Scott Monty. And I'm still in New Jersey. I'm Burt Wolder. And together, we say... 
the, the games, games of foot. <laughs> the, the games, games of foot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes.